Hey, everybody. A few weeks ago, I went to Max LawCon, and so I got to talk to about 200 other like-minded law firm owners about their practice. And it was so interesting to me that it came back to kind of this breakdown of we all have basically the same problems, and we all have basically the same limiting beliefs. That as much as we think our law firms are very different, we're not, and that's a good thing. You know, nobody wants to go into the doctor's office and be diagnosed with Jordan disease. You know, you want the thing that somebody's done 10,000 times or more that they know how to fix. So that being said, I'm super excited for our chat today with Mark Rockwell. Mark's going to talk to us about how to achieve our goals by facing them. Face being focus, accountability, core values, and execution. Basically taking these four concepts and applying them specifically to us and our needs so that we can achieve the law firms that we've always dreamed of. For those of you that don't know Mark, he works with lawyers who are frustrated by their inability to scale up and become profitable. He helps them create their vision and implement an operating platform that builds healthy, thriving law firms. He's a graduate of Willamette University College of Law and Northwestern University, the Kellogg School of Management. Mark is both an attorney and entrepreneur. He has started and grown several companies during his career, and he struggled with the same frustrations and setbacks all lawyers and business owners experience. Hence, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we all have the same problems. Most recently, Mark created a healthcare company, which grew to 12 locations, 800 employees, and $50 million in annual revenue. It was during this period he witnessed firsthand the transformative power of implementing the operating platform he now shares with law firms. Mark and his wife, Cindy, have two sons, Andrew and Chase. He served as president of the trustee, trustees and elder at Lake Grove Presbyterian and on the board of several nonprofit organizations. They live in Lake Oswego, Oregon. So before this, we were talking about the different awesome cheeses and ice cream up here in Oregon uh, and their English bulldogs, Annabelle and Sugar and a sweet but somewhat cranky Shih Tzu named Daisy. And I don't know if Facebook allows us to say Shih Tzu, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Mark's the author of, quote, uh, of a book called Five Mistakes Lawyers Make That Kill Their Career. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. And uh, Mark and I were connected through Steve Fretzen, I think the only multiple-time guest we've had on the show. Um, and Steve has nothing but wonderful, amazing things to say about you. So well, leads me to know between that and our chats, I know this will be a phenomenal episode. So before we dive deep into our you know, 40 minutes on achieving our goals by facing them, focus, accountability, core values, and execution, I want to talk about our last episode, or in this case, last episodes, because last week we went back to back. Uh, so the first one we had Chris Guyman on, talked about time freedom, the steps to buying more time. So we talked about the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 Rule, uh, Parkinson's Law, and also time blocking. So some really good tips on how attorneys uh, or how firm owners can buy more time. And then a few hours before that, we had Matthew Kerbis on. Matthew is the subscription attorney. We talked about the Netflix law firm, subscription models in the law. So Matt walked us through some of the tips and tricks to go from that dreaded billable hour and into something more uh, life-supporting, like a subscription model. So after you hear the amazing insight that Mark has to share, if either of those previous episodes appeal to you, we'll have the links below. Jump on in, but don't miss your opportunity to listen to Mark live and ask some questions. Mark, thanks for being with us today. Indeed. And uh, like I told Mark beforehand, I'll tell everybody now, I assume at this point we are two minutes away from a four-year-old coming running in because he was up until two about, about two o'clock in the morning. So then he uh, slept until right before we started this. So. We'll see how that goes. But you know what? If there's one positive to come out of the COVID work from home life, it's that I think all of us finally realize that everybody's human. And whether there's dogs or kids or pets or whatever else, 
going on in the background, uh, we can all give each other a little bit of grace and enjoyment. So that being said, Mark, I want to talk about your story. I know obviously we did the bio, but what, talk to me a little bit about some of those frustrations you had as an attorney before you started implementing this awesome uh, operating platform to help have a better life. Well, you know, I think as human beings and business people and attorneys, we tend to think of ourselves first and foremost as having, whether we consciously think about it or not, kind of unlimited capacity. We don't actually get up in the morning and say, well, I really only have so many hours to do. It's, I've got 24 hours. And so what happens is there's this tendency for us as humans to just keep loading stuff onto our pile. And as that happens, we become defocused. And the more topics, the more subjects, the more problems we try to handle, the more frustrated we become. And we, the tendency is to think, well, if I just work more days, more hours, work faster, work harder, somehow I'll climb the mountain. And the fact is that doesn't work. It's not sustainable. And so I learned years ago, just probably out of a form of exhaustion, that if I didn't really consciously focus and limit the number of things I was spending my time and energy on, I was never, I was never going to be successful. Yeah. It's interesting to me because I think, you know, we talk so much about that, op the, the concept of opportunity cost, right? Like if you're doing the $10 an hour work instead of the $1,000 an hour work, you could hire somebody for the 10, do the thousand and then still make 990. But what you're talking about here is that same opportunity cost from time. Like every time you say yes to something, you're saying either no to something else, whether that's time with your family, whether that's time to sleep, whether that's, you know, whatever else it is. So I love that kind of, I don't know, transition that you're taking on that. Well, and you know, what's interesting when you make that comment that we're saying no to something else, that's the biggest issue early on is we don't consciously know we are making that statement of no to something else. We actually think that we're continuing to say yes to everything and that the way we can accomplish that is just working longer, harder, and faster. And in the short term, maybe we deceive ourselves into thinking that's a winning strategy. But at some time, at some point, the bathtub's full and it just starts flowing over the side. And that's when we have a catastrophe. And that's when people start becoming depressed because they realize they're not getting any wins. It doesn't matter how hard they're working, they're not getting what they feel like anything into the end zone. I can remember years ago, Jordan, and this is one of the per, perhaps one of the most profound lessons I learned as a young man. I participated in the, a local uh, leadership class conducted by the Chamber of Commerce. And every month we would get together for a day and they would have a topic for that month. And I've forgotten all the other topics, but the one topic I do remember was how to say no. And so the, the point of that session was this, you folks in this class are all leaders. You're all can-do people. You're all willing to step to the plate and take on responsibility. The problem is each of us has finite capacity. And at some point, people come to you and ask, well, would you take, how about you be the uh, Sunday school uh, leader this next year? Well, if that's something you've done in the past and you kind of enjoy doing it and you really would feel guilty about saying no, the human tendency is to say, oh, well, okay, yeah, I could do that. Knowing full well, you really don't have the energy 
or the time. And so the profound lesson I learned from that was this, that we need to learn to say no. But we need to learn to say no in that situation in a very diplomatic and thoughtful way. And so what I remember them teaching us was something very simple, where someone asks you what to take on responsibility that might even be somewhat flattering. But you have to say, you know, I'm, I'm really complimented by the fact that you would ask me to take that on. I will tell you, my heart says that's something I would love to do. My head tells me I'm overcommitted. And I don't want to say yes to something unless I know I can really do what you expect of me. So I am going to have to decline, not because I wouldn't love to, but because I frankly just don't have the capacity. So it's interesting to me. I think we we spend so much time kind of comparing ourselves to doctors, right? Like lawyers and doctors being those ivory tower, you know, lab coat, white collar professions. But one, doctors get training on how to tell somebody bad news. And two, then hospitals hire specific social workers to do it as well. Whereas from the law firm owner standpoint, it's usually always us being like, hey, I know you wanted a million dollars for, you know, this terrible injury that you more than deserve, but there's zero dollars in insurance on the other side. Like that's a discussion that comes up so frequently, but without that same training. So I love what you're sharing there in terms of, you know, how to say, how to say no or how to give bad news. You know, sometimes it's out of our hands, but when it's us saying no with our own time, it really isn't something that we can push off onto somebody else. It becomes that internal need to, uh, to share the no. Absolutely. And, you know, the other side of that too, Jordan, is this. Let's say you do take on something that you shouldn't or you don't have capacity for. Ultimately, you're going to have a ball drop. You're either not going to show up. You're not going to give it your all. You're, not, you're, you're just not going to fulfill what it was you said you'd do. And then you're racked with guilt. You're overstressed. The person who's asked you to take it on, whether it's you know, doing some legal work, whether it's doing a, a nonprofit charity board assignment, nobody wins in that situation. And so if there's one word of advice I would give myself and others is just be realistic about what your priorities in life are how much you really are in a position to spend on, on professional activities, on family activities. And obviously none of that is cut and dried and precise, but it is to say that there are only 24 hours in a day. And by the way, we all have the same 24 hours. And so it's so, really a matter of budgeting our time. So along those lines, I, I guess jump in if you disagree. But we are kind of talking about this from a sliding scale perspective, right? Like on day one of opening your firm, it's easier to say yes to things. You're going to say yes to a bunch of the wrong things, but you probably don't know enough in terms of what to say yes and no to. Then as you become busier, as you become more successful, or as you become more uh, financially stable, it becomes more important to say no to new opportunities. Is that? Are you with me on that one? Well, absolutely. Having said that, and I know this requires you know, some, uh, some discipline, I, I do believe early on when a person opens their firm, they do need to make a very clear decision in their mind as to what type of work they like to do, what they're good at, and the kind of work they should say no to. Because if you're really going to have a successful law firm, it can't just be cats and dogs. It's gotta be something that you enjoy, something that you can scale, 
something that people will have confidence in you, uh, will have confidence that you are in fact a an expert in that area. I mean, law is very different than it was in uh, say 40, 50 years ago where someone opened their office and they did everything from wills and estates to contracts to bankruptcy. It's It really requires some level of specialization. And that's not really just a matter of trying to be an elitist or being hoity-toity. It's really saying, how can I be a specialist in every area? You can't. So it's learning how to prioritize the work that you want to do, because if you're if you don't know what you're looking for, you won't find it. So if you know that you want to focus on business transactions or you want to uh, focus on family law or uh, bankruptcy law, then that is several reasons for doing that. One, not only will you build your expertise in that area, that is what you'll become known for. That is what people will start referring you for. And as we know, referrals in any professional line of business are extremely important. And if people don't know what you do specifically, they're not going to refer you uh, or that not because they wouldn't love to. They just don't know what kind of referral to make. Yeah, it's the uh, I, I mean, and I always I, I want to say correct me up. That's the wrong word. I always feel badly for the attorneys. They're like, oh, we you know, we being the one person specialize in criminal defense and personal injury and family law and the states and this. And I'm like there physically aren't enough hours in the day for you to read every case for you to know what the standard is for all of those areas of law. Um, plus you've got to be driving yourself miserable because if you are the second lawyer people think of, you don't get those referrals. And if you're talking to people about 27 different things, it's really hard to sit in their mind as the go-to expert for that one thing. So yeah, niche, niche, a niche will make you rich. That's my, uh, that's my favorite saying whenever we talk about these things. So the word I like to use, because and I use it as I preach to myself, because I've found that I'm uh, the most uh, in need of this, or as, in need as much as anybody. It's really focus, F-O-C-U-S, focus. And bright people who are capable and high energy, which most attorneys are, tend to be distracted by the shiny object, as opposed to saying no. I could probably do that, but you know what? That really isn't my area of expertise. And frankly, that's not an area that I have a passion for. And early on in opening a, a, a law office, I can understand the sincere temptation or perhaps even the need to take on cases that later on you wouldn't take on. But fairly early in the evolution of a, of a law firm, there needs to be a very conscious discipline as to uh, what type of work you're going to do. And, and if for no other reason, you're going to start recruiting employees at some point. And so as you begin to recruit associates, you need to know what you're looking for and they need to know what kind of law work they're going to be doing with you. So it, everybody benefits, the client, the attorney who is the head of the firm, as well as colleagues that you're going to be recruiting if there is a real sharp definition as to what your focus is. Well, and of course, you know, I'm going to look at it from that marketing angle, right? So the, the white collar criminal defense firm versus the general practice criminal defense firm versus the DUI focused criminal defense firm mm -hmm. are going to say different things in their marketing. They're going to attend different events. They're going to be looking for different people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it becomes really easy to say no to bad marketing opportunities. The more focus you have, 
or uh, like my story, just say yes to all of them below every dollar you have and $200,000 you don't because you don't have the focus that Mark is so wonderfully talking about right now. So learn, uh, learn from our mistakes, please, please learn from our mistakes. And you know, I use this corny illustration that, uh, uh, you know, how we clean our garage and everything looks really, really tidy for the first 30 to 60 days. But by the time 90 days has gone by, the garage is in desperate need of reorganization. You know, that garden hose that didn't get wound up and the extension cord that's laying in the corner. The same is true in our professional lives. If we don't have a real sense of commitment to who we are, why we do it, who we do it for, we just lose definition and things over time become really quite chaotic. Totally. Or you can go on a 14 month cross country road trip and then you don't have a garage to get messy, but no, I'm just, uh, that's gotta make you feel good. Your garage. I hope you left your garage in good shape when you left, left uh, Orlando. Cause when you get back, it'll be beautiful. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we rented out our house for the year. So the, uh, we, we truly have no garage currently, but anyway, um, I, but I'm, I'm with you in terms of this focus, you know, like it is so important and the pushback, I think, I mean, from my, the pushback I get a ton is like, well, aren't I going to lose out on this kind of case and this kind of case and this kind of case. And to me, the answer is always no, but if you do, that's a good thing. You know, like the more you have that bullseye in place, you're going to get the one rung out. You're going to get the two rung out. You know, if I'm playing darts, if I'm hitting that uh, triple 20 when I'm aiming for the bullseye, I'm pretty happy. But by aiming for that bullseye, by aiming for that ideal client, by focusing down, it makes it that much easier to do well. If, as opposed to if you're just trying to hit the board, then, you know, you might put some into the wall behind it. You know, years ago, I read a book, uh, no surprise here by the title, Focus by Al Reese. Great little book, uh, bright yellow cover with a great big bullseye on it. Looks like a Target store. And he tells the story, uh, which was really fascinating. And I have to say it was fundamental in changing my thinking. He said, it is, it is a fundamental human weakness to lose focus. And he talks about major corporations that get, have lots of money and they become really convinced that they're so good, that their brand name is so powerful. I'll make a, a corny joke here that, um, John Deere could sell men's boxers and call them John Deere and they'd probably be really successful just because their brand name is so powerful. Well, the reality is over time, if you put your name on all kinds of different products, suddenly your name really becomes kind of meaningless because people don't know what it means. He, he used the example of describe for me what a Chevy is. You can't tell me because it's a truck, it's a panel, it's a convertible, it's a big car, it's a small car, it's a Corvette. He talks about how the name Chevy over the years, unlike what it was, say, 75 years ago, it was really a crisp, defined uh, nameplate. Not so much anymore. But at any rate, he made the point that we as human beings and even major corporations have to constantly reel ourselves in and recognize we may be getting defocused because we're grabbing what seems to be short-term opportunities that will ring the cash bell. But he makes the, per, the pervasive or the persuasive, I should say, persuasive case that, in fact, in the near term, by grabbing some business that's not your core focus, you may actually ring the cash register on that item. But over time, 
because you lose focus, because people don't know who you are, it actually has a profound negative impact on your business. And it's a fascinating book. I would recommend it to anybody. And, you know, the thing for me that's interesting is I, you know, because look, I have a law firm and a marketing company, and I talk to a ton of lawyers that have multiple businesses, and you've got multiple businesses. The thing, the common thread that I find behind that is either A, like you, they're brilliant, or B, like me, it's still the same thing. Like at the end of the day, I was always running the marketing for my law firm. So running a marketing company is the same job, or it's this, or you're targeting the same client. You know, you get the case management system. Like um, my case just got bought by LawPay. Well, great. They already provide the payment stuff to it. LawPay provides the software. They're going to merge these things, but still go after the same customers. There becomes this really interesting way to actually grow your focus deeper as opposed to growing your focus broader to mm-hmm. make more money, have different revenue streams, you know, whatever that looks like without losing that focus. No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. The, uh, uh, the other p- uh, item that I have really become convinced about for the success of any business and uh, certainly for a law firm, and that is developing really solid, healthy culture. And it comes down to, I actually, you know, we talk about core values. I actually prefer the term core behaviors. I I recently read a great book. It's one of the best books I've read in a long time. Uh, And I read a lot of books and it's called Culture by Design by David Friedman. And he makes the case that good culture doesn't just happen. No surprise there, I guess. But oftentimes we delude ourselves into thinking, well, if we're just good people and we hire nice folks and we're thoughtful and genuine, we'll really wind up with a healthy uh, culture in our firm. And to some extent, that's true. But he makes the case that, well, he tells the story that he started a company. And this is one of the reasons I like it so well is he he's not an academic. He's actually a, a business person who started a firm built it to a sizable uh, organization and then sold it. And he realized after he sold it that one of his greatest satisfactions out of that whole uh, event was having created a mechanism to implement great corporate culture. And that truly is the case in law firms, which is, as we know from experience, is oftentimes really lacking. And he describes it as being a process of defining what behaviors you want in your firm. Core values, as an example, are principles. So those are concepts. They're kind of academic sounding. They're kind of passive. They're sort of theoretical. But when you start to describe behaviors, those are actions that you can observe in yourself and in your colleagues. An example might be, we're an on-time firm. We are an on-time firm. We are never late for anything. Now, human nature being what it is, obviously in the course of 365 days, there will be an occasion when you're late. But as a principle, as a concept, as a commitment, as a behavior that the firm subscribes to, it's an on-time firm. And you can observe that in yourself and you can observe that in your colleagues. Another might be always doing what's best for the client. Another might be... um, always maintaining a positive can-do attitude. So he goes on to describe, and it's really a a book I would recommend to anyone listening, 
most firms that he works with will wind up with somewhere around 20, what he refers to as foundational behaviors. I like to tell this story. It's a little off point, but it, it makes the point. Here in the Pacific Northwest, there is a tire company by the name of Les Schwab. And it's uh, really a, a Saren, uh, Cinderella story in that Les Schwab was born in Eastern Oregon. He was an orphan and he could easily have, uh, and on the wrong side of the tracks, and he could easily have wound up being someone that you would say was less than successful. But he wound up establishing a supremely successful company of 600 tire stores. And I have to tell you, when you go to a Les Schwab tire store, it's not your typical tire store. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not dirty. The bathrooms aren't messy. Uh, they have a wonderful place for you to sit and watch TV while your car is being serviced on, being serviced. But the point I want to make of this story is as you pull into the parking lot and you park in a customer service stall, as you reach over to pick up your wallet and your sunglasses and your keys, all of a sudden you hear a voice saying on your left side, on the driver's side, good morning, how can I help you? And you turn and there is a young man, probably in his early 20s, who has loped across the parking lot in a half jog and is there waiting to attend to you. That's called hustle. That's hustle. That is one of their core behaviors. Now I can tell you if they hired a thousand young men, some percentage of those would no doubt have hustle, but because that is a defined core behavior, if you don't have hustle, you're not gonna get hired at Les Schwab. So that really applies to law firms. What are the behaviors that we want to show ourselves? What associate behavior do we wanna observe in our interaction with our, our, ourselves, our fellow colleagues, as well as our clients? So I think that's a, a really fun thing to focus on and to recognize that that is the key to creating a really winning law firm. And it's so interesting that you phrase it that way. So like I said, I talked about at the beginning, I was at Max Law a couple of weeks ago. And so the presentation I did was running a law firm that doesn't need you on the day-to-day. -day. Obviously run a 14, it'll be a 14 month road trip. So that was what I talked about. And it's so funny to me because two people that I very highly uh, honor their opinion, trust their opinion, are way smarter than me said exactly what you said. They're like the better presentation, the one we wish you said was, how do you build a firm that your employees don't revolt when you're doing a 14 month road trip? So it goes right back into that culture thing that you were talking about. I'll, so we'll see, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll put that one together. Although it's weird to be like, this is what my employees think of me. Like, let me tell you how they view this. But you know, there certainly are decisions that we've made um, to empower people to feel to know that they are capable of so much more and to be that team, to be that supportive culture, et cetera. You know, uh, kind of piggybacking on that, I, I have to say I have a number of, of firms I work with and most of them are what I would call small to medium size. And the recurring theme that I have, that I sense is really underfoot. And we all know that there's been a big, a big migration of attorneys from one firm to another to another over the last year or two, and that's probably going to continue. But one of the recurring themes I have heard from people who are really first class in their field and have worked for some large, big law firms 
but have left to join one of my mid-sized clients is we didn't like the culture. We just didn't like the culture. It was stifling. It was exhausting. It was debilitating. We feel so alive here in this culture where we know we are, uh, we are appreciated. We are respected. We are viewed as professionals. We don't feel as though there are people standing outside our office with stopwatches, keeping track of every second of our time, that we have the dignity of working on behalf of our clients and not feeling the stress that we are going to be micromanaged. Isn't that interesting? It, it's fascinating. And I always talk about it from the standpoint of like your brand is your external culture. Your culture is your internal brand. And you, and whether you know it or not, whether you do anything about it or not, you have a external brand, you have an internal culture. And so to sit back and say like, okay, it's fine. Or we're not doing anything for this means you're not in control of what people are saying about you or thinking about coming to work. Um, and it's always interesting to me that that seems to be a thing that gets less of a, of a focus to use your thing than some, you know, external marketing and running ads and whatnot, but ultimately provides that foundational success that you build everything off of or the lack thereof. And so from the standpoint of creating a powerfully positive culture, not only does that result in great work product, but it is, I believe, perhaps the most powerful recruiting tool that any firm can have and the most powerful tool for retaining good colleagues. So why wouldn't you selfishly, if you want to have a really great firm where you attract great talent and you retain good talent, want to make every effort possible to create and maintain a really healthy, constructive culture? And, and it can be done. It just doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, I, um, I just finished um, Donald Miller's Building a Story Brand last oh, yes. uh, yesterday. He's great. Yeah, he's and great. so he finishes, he's got the thing about using using the story brand framework for the internal culture stuff. And he cites to a study that, and I, for, forgive me on what year the book came out, 2015, something like that, where they figured that between employees um, not buying into the culture, so leaving for a different job, being burned out, taking more sick days, et cetera, that companies in America lose somewhere between 450 and $550 billion per year in the human capital that gets impacted by having a, a bad culture. So piggybacking on that, uh, another uh, item that comes up a lot, perhaps more than almost more than anything else with from attorneys I work with, is their struggle to manage their time. And it, it kind of goes back to that early stage, that early comment that we, I talked about right, taking on too much. But even, even if you're not taking on too much, there is always that unending struggle of how to prioritize and manage your time. And they're really, uh, I wrote a, a ebook about a year ago called um, Five Mistakes Lawyers Make That Kill Their Career. And it's, it's really pretty simple stuff. Um, but it, 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 there are items that attorneys need to consciously focus on. And most of us can fall into bad habits, myself included, by being, number one, too accessible. We, it, we certainly don't want to come off as being aloof. I'm not suggesting that. We certainly don't want to come off as somebody who's so impressed with ourselves that nobody can ever reach us. But it is to say that if we are too available, 
we are going to be constantly all day long interrupted. Every 10 to 15 minutes will be interrupted. And, and the fact of the matter is, particularly when you're an attorney and you're dealing with some complex issues, it takes anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes to spool back up to efficient speed once you have broken your chain of thought. So the first area that I really encourage attorneys to get a handle on is put your cell phone away. Just don't have your cell phone on your desk. And if it's on your desk, have it turned off because those constant text messages, constant emails, uh, those dings and bings, I'm no different than anybody else. When I hear a ding or a bing, I I have to tell you, I am tempted to look at and see what it is or who it is that is trying to get a hold of me. So that's number one is really getting a handle on your text and phone messages or phone, just putting it aside. And I want to, I want to jump in on that for a second for you. Sure, please one. do. So, cause, cause I always look at this, the easiest way for me to look at what you're saying is from a content creation perspective. Like the amount of videos, the amount of, of messages, the amount of marketing material or information you can put together in a half an hour versus in an hour. I think in an hour, you can do three times as much work as in a half an hour because you're on the topic, because you're in the moment. And obviously you take that into filming for a half day. You know, you probably get 15 to 20 times as much information on, a, on four days of doing it or four hours of doing it versus that half an hour for exactly what you said. And I think that becomes the one that's kind of easiest for growth-minded law firm owners to start with. And then when you realize that benefit, then you also put it into writing briefs for clients. You also put it into HR. You also put it into, you know, the office culture stuff. And you'll see that same, you know, almost exponential uh, impact by having those slightly longer blocks of time because you're in, you're in it. You're in the flow. Oh, no question. And once you're in the flow... It, 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 you clearly know when you're in the flow because things are really working. Yeah, totally. Another area, and we're all guilty of this, it's kind of analogous to the first point, and that's just being constantly exposed to email. We, we, we stop to answer emails, which are not urgent, but if we're constantly accessible, think about this. If I have been sending you emails, you're my attorney, and you typically respond almost immediately, I find that pleasurable, of course, but then when I send you an email and I don't get an answer back for six hours, which is probably a more realistic turnaround, then I'm thinking, gosh, is he now ignoring my work? Am I no longer an important client? Uh, has he gone AWOL on me? So managing expectations with clients is really important. And, and I do think, because we all deal with clients that have emergencies, they need to know that if they have a bona fide emergency, then your assistant is going to come in and grab you by the hair of the head if that's what it takes and let you know. But if it's just a standard routine item, you'll be back to that person certainly within 24 hours, probably the same day, but you're probably not going to respond to them in 45 minutes. So managing expectations, managing your reading of your emails to preferably only twice a day, having your assistant go through all of the emails and manage and handle as many as possible. Many are just routine and simple and can be handled by someone other than yourself. So that's a very big piece of time management that most attorneys really violate. I also find the, uh, and I'm going to attribute this to Pascal. I might be wrong, but I think that's who it was. 
who was famous for saying, I didn't have enough time to send you a shorter letter in that case. You know, when you rush to these emails, I know I'm guilty of this. I want to, you know, respond to it quickly and I respond to it quickly, but not as specifically as if I had taken more time, which then leads to a follow-up email, which then leads to response. You know, as opposed to if I took an extra 10 minutes, I could probably save myself a half an hour of email back and forth by actually answering that email fully uh, and firmly. So I'm with you. I also think that because attorneys, and I I understand this completely because we're in a service business, want to be readily available to clients. But that's kind of like answering your text messages and answering your emails right away. If you always take phone calls and you always allow people to just drop in unexpectedly and have a meeting, I mean, my gosh, uh, you, you could have had something blocked out where you needed to get a brief done between three and four that afternoon, you needed to finish it up. And now all of a sudden at three o'clock, you're in a meeting that was completely unscheduled and it takes an hour, hour and a half. And now you're really behind the eight ball. Your energy's low. You're behind schedule. Managing expectations again with clients is really important. When you have an engagement with a client up front, there needs to be a conversation about meetings and phone calls and commitments I believe, because I'm a client as well of many people and many firms, if I know upfront what to expect and I know the person I'm dealing with is committed and responsive and what they're promising to do is really an effort to get me great service, I'm not going to expect that I can just drop in unexpectedly. I'm not going to expect that I can just call and they're always going to take my call. I mean, my gosh, they're a busy attorney. They're not sitting there just waiting for my call. So managing expectations, asking people to schedule phone calls, asking people to schedule meetings is a tremendous, will have a tremendous impact again on your efficiency. So it's text messages, emails, phone calls, impromptu meetings. Those are four huge time sucks that in the course of a week, not to mention a year, if not managed, burn up hours and hours of time. And the, I want to say beauty of it is those clients that aren't okay with you having those boundaries are the 20% of clients that are going to take up 80% of your time. Like by, by putting this in place and backing this, the people that you drive away who aren't willing to give you the right time are the ones who are going to ruin it more than anybody else. Well, that's true. And those who do, who you do want to have as clients and who appreciate you, when they have called and left a message at nine o'clock in the morning and they get a response by five o'clock and it's consistent, then they don't worry that you aren't going to return their call. They just know it's not going to be an immediate knee, uh, knee jerk reaction where 10 minutes after they call, they're going to get a response. There's this cadence that has been explained it's observed it's followed up and what that really amounts to then is you're able to give consistent and i think that's the operative term consistently high predictable responses to your clients which they appreciate and respect so i want to make sure we talk about accountability because i'm so interested to see what you have to say about that but before we jump to accountability i want to make sure we don't i don't cut you off on this point okay no 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 i I think accountability is great let's go there okay cool so This is the one, it is so interesting to me, the number of 
with the shiny object syndrome, the number of super smart lawyers, very successful, that will spend so much money to make sure that they are being held accountable because of realizing how important it is. So I'm just, I'm super interested to see your insight on the accountability portion of, you know, facing your goals. Well, you know, when it comes to accountability and, and I oftentimes think in terms of not only holding myself accountable, but holding other staff members accountable. One of the complaints you'll oftentimes hear from people, particularly practitioners who are running their own law firm is they'll say, Oh gosh, I just, I just can't hold. I just have a horrible time holding people accountable. And so you have to step back and say, so what, why is that? What's, what's the issue? I will tell you, I believe, and I've struggled with this myself. One of the biggest challenges in holding ourselves and others accountable is having a clear understanding of what it is the expectations are. In other words, if I said to you, let's say you and I are uh, working together and I need for you to handle certain aspects of the brief or certain uh, proof items. If I just say, well, yeah, I, I, I could use your help, Jordan. And I'm hoping that you kind of understand what it is I'm alluding to. There's a pretty high likelihood that three days from now, I'm going to come back to you and say, so how's that going? You go, well, I'm, what are you talking about? Uh, I, I'm working. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. But you haven't done any of the work that I had anticipated. And the reason being is I was never specific. So to hold myself and particularly colleagues accountable, there needs to be real clear understanding as to what is the expectation. What is the responsibility? What does the finished product look like? And when is it due? And I will promise you, most of the time when people are disappointed, whether it's a client that's disappointed or a lawyer that's disappointed in the performance of a colleague, it's because one or all four of those things are fuzzy. Mark, example, go ahead. I feel, I feel personally attacked right now. Right? <laughs> And I say that because you have spoken into my heart on this. So can we get those four things one more time? Because we're, we're going to turn this into a, uh, a carousel here. We're going to run that on this thing. So in terms of getting the right accountability, what were the four things that you outlined? Well, first of all, in? there needs to be real cl clear definition of what it is I want. I mean, if I just kind of grunt uh, and I hope that, you know, be because we've worked together before, you, you just kind of know what I want. That's a problem. So what is it I want? What does the finished product look like? When do I want it? And um, gosh, I, I'm I, I've kind of thrown myself out of order. But right. I, I, the point of it is, we'll we'll run it back. Step we'll pull back it and sentence. ask yourself: Does this person know what I want, how it's going to look, when I want, where I want it? Do, do I want it delivered here? Or do I want it delivered in Seattle? There's just so much ambiguity. We tend, as human beings, think about this we tend to communicate in shorthand. We use abbreviations. We grunt. We expect that the other person is going to understand what we want. And I have to say, speaking for myself, a lot of the time when I don't get what I want, it's because I was lazy. I didn't take the effort to really communicate clearly. And as the communicator, the broadcaster, this is a premise we have to all remember. It is our responsibility as the party initiating the communication 
to make it clear and precise. It is not the recipient's obligation to divine what it is we mean. You know, it's it's so funny. I'll, I always go back to, I remember I was sitting in a motion to suppress as a prosecutor way back in the day. So we have a cop on the stand. He's talking about this traffic stop that he, that he uh, put in. And so he gave an answer that was, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but basically it was like, look, as a trained Leo, unsaid law enforcement officer, I needed to find RS for the stop, reasonable suspicion, and my PC, probable cause, came from knowing that they were a, a dwillis, a DWLS, a driving while license suspended. And the funny part is, everybody in the courtroom knew exactly what he was talking about. It was so clear to us, but I can only imagine somebody else reading this transcript and being like, the hell is this guy saying? And so, of course, like this wasn't, a, you know, if it was a jury hearing, I would have been like, all right, you know, let's break down everything that you just said. But without it, we didn't have to. Um, and so, you know, you're able to to get to that in one sentence that would otherwise need to be, you know, three whole paragraphs of explaining all these things to everybody. Um, but you're right, because the problem becomes if everybody doesn't have the same lingo, if you don't have that same, you know, dictionary of acronyms or whatever you want to call it, then you're just creating immense confusion. Well, and think of exactly and think of uh, requesting something to be complete as being a, a chain of maybe five or six events. If you leave one link in that chain out, you're not going to get the product you want. For instance, if you wanted it in bound copies, if you want it all collated, if you want it FedExed to somebody, any piece of that request that is not clear isn't going to get done. So back to the whole point about accountability, I would tell you, obviously, there are times when things don't get done because the person that you asked to do it just wasn't that on point. But I would venture to say that more often than not, the disappointment, in fact, I heard a, a quote I thought was really good the other day, the majority of disappointments are the result of unexpressed expectations. Makes total sense. The majority of disappointments are the result of unexpressed expectations. We believe that the person we're communicating with is going to divine what it is we want and expect. And so it, you could honestly say either that's because we're being a little sloppy or a little lazy, but we need to be really overt in having clarity and then Actually, if we want to put a padlock on it, have the person remark back to us what it is they've heard us say. So, and, and you know, it's funny. I, I always, I talk about this from the standpoint of like, everything is your fault all the time. And there are people that think that that is the most soul crushing thing. But for me, it's the most liberating thing, right? Like if I set better expectations, I would be less disappointed. Gives me power to put myself in a better situation, to, to put the situation in a better situation to put the firm in a better spot as opposed to just kind of falling back on, you know, that person isn't capable of this, or I didn't hire the right person. No, no, no. Like I didn't set the right expectations for them to live up to, which is easier for me to control than anybody else. I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, I learned years ago and I am not sitting here as an example of uh, flawless execution, but I remember years ago, uh, recognizing when I was uh, doing a development project and my I was talking with an architect who was on the project and I was there with the managing partner. And so we were talking about getting the plans revised and 
the managing partner said, so when can we expect the revisions? And the architect said, oh, I'll have them for you the middle of next week. And my partner said, there is no middle of next week. And he pulled out his calendar and he said, how about noon on Wednesday? And he wrote it down. And the lesson I learned from that is there is no middle of next week. There is no first part of next week. You, know, you think about how that works. If I say to you, Jordan, I'll have that for you the first part. I'll have it for you the first of the week. Now, I'm you're thinking I'll have that Monday morning. I'm thinking I'll have it for you before Wednesday at noon, because that's still kind of the first part of the week. There has been a complete flyby right there, and we haven't even started the transaction. So the one of the lessons I've learned, and I'm not always flawless at doing this, is to say, well, let's set a time and a date. Does Tuesday at, by two o'clock work for you? Now, what happens when you hear that, a mental pencil drops down on your calendar because there is a very specific date. The date, you know, 23rd, two o'clock, got it. But if it's the first of the week or the middle of the week, that's a very squishy, non-committal kind of a timeline. And I will guarantee you, almost without exception, you will be disappointed. Because if someone says, well, I'll have it for you by the end of the week, son of a gun, Friday around two o'clock, it's not done and it will roll to Monday. Well, and the funniest part for me about what you're talking about, barring the fact that there's a court date set, barring the fact that there is a deadline put into our, you know, rules of procedure, 99% of the time we're setting our own expectation. So why the fuck are you setting an expectation that you can't follow? Like you could tell them Tuesday by five and have it show up Monday at five and they're going to be so ecstatic. Like, I don't understand why as law firm owners, we always try and set this rush that we can't necessarily hit or can't hit doing the work the right way when we could just give ourselves more time with the expectation and still beat it. Yeah. Well, and, and so clear expectations expressed and clear expectations goes back to where we started. What is it you want? When is it you want, want it? Where is it going to be? What's it going to look like? What's the, what's the real commitment defining the commitment so that then people do feel mutually accountable. I love it. All right. So we've got, keep looking at my clock because this time is flying by. So we've got like about five more minutes left in what's the best use of that time. What is, what is, what do we need to focus on for the last five minutes to drive the most amount of value that we can to anybody listening or watching this? Well, I'm trying to think really what uh, back on all the work that I've done with attorneys and what is the common thread? What is the biggest frustration that most attorneys uh, suffer from? And, and, and I have to tell you, I, if there's one theme, I, I really think it's time management. I think most attorneys feel overwhelmed that um, regardless of how fast they're pedaling, they just can't keep up. And, and that's why I focus on uh, or I emphasize those two concepts. Number one, focus. Make sure that you start to say no to many things that are just not central to what it, you know, is is your mission in life. And I know that's going to feel somewhat uncomfortable, perhaps, but it's imperative that you that you master that. And then number two, to prioritize your time. And this is something we haven't talked about, but 
it's a real simple trick. And that is every morning you get up or every evening when you end your day, if you don't want to sit down and spend an hour organizing your time, at the very least, write down the top three items that you need to accomplish the next day. And of those three, define which is number one. Because if the next day you get all three of those top priorities completed, or at least you have this sense that you are that the top most important items are not getting away from you, that in itself will give you a sense of peace. Uh, it's so easy for us as individuals to get distracted on things that are busy, time-consuming. And then we come up to four o'clock and we go, oh my gosh, I haven't even touched these two items that are just imperative. So end the prior day, if that's when you do your organization for the following day, or start in the morning. I believe that some quiet time with a cup of coffee to just organize yourself in the morning is really pays dividends. But define those top three items and then um, manage your time so that you're not suffering from constant interruptions and you will be much happier as a result. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it's always interesting to me. I try and find the things that match law firms, right? Like sports is the only other adversarial profession to law. You know, doctors, other white collar professionals seem to have some overlap. But in the concept of business, we always talk about scalability so much. Like a business needs to be scalable. And the problem is when we get out of law school and we think that we're, you know, God's gift to the black letter of law, we are not scalable. We can impact more things by growing a firm, by scaling other people, by scaling technology, by scaling, um, you know, automation and systems, whatever that looks like. But inherently, we ourselves are not scalable because we go back to, what we started this with, we have the same 24 hours in the day. And I think the switch of that focus really takes you out of that role of feeling you need to be the hero. You know, like a lot of the coaching programs talk about killing the hero, you know, because of that exact reason, like you can't be the one slaying every dragon because you can only do that 24 hours every day, as opposed to if you empower the rest of your team, if you empower the technology, the systems, et cetera, to solve all those issues that can constantly be added to. Well, and that's a, that's a conversation we could have on another another uh, segment, which is all about how do you organize a team and how do you grow a team. What we've really focused on today is pre predominantly how to how does how do you keep an individual from going crazy by uh, making themselves productive and utilizing their time wisely. But yeah, how do you scale a team? How do you uh, how do you recruit? How do you retain? Those are, that's a whole nother uh, interesting uh, series of topics. All right. So in our, uh, we're going to come back to Mark for the final wisdom, biggest takeaway, but I do want to talk about our next episode. Um, our next episode is going to air on 627. So next Monday, 1.30 Eastern time, we have Stephanie Vaughn Jones on from Money Penny, who's going to talk to us about the top communication tips you need to know. I know more and more law firms are bringing in answering services. And so I'm super excited to hear from Stephanie about the communication tips you need to know to make sure that's the most seamless experience internally, but even more importantly, making sure it's the most seamless experience for all of your potential clients, because nothing will turn somebody off like the phone being not answered or answered terribly. So that will be next week, next Monday, 1.30 Eastern time. But Mark, despite the amazing amount of wisdom you have shared in the last 55 minutes, I still want one more or one repeat that if somebody has 
completely glazed over everything, what would be that biggest nugget of wisdom, that most important takeaway, that thing that you want as many attorneys as possible to know so that they too can be the exhibit A of a successful lawyer such as yourself? Well, there's several, but I would have to say if, if there's just one, it, it, it's learning to say no. It's learning to say no in a thoughtful, caring way so that people don't feel as though they have been snubbed or have been somehow treated rudely. And, and you can do that. I mean, you can do it in a very understanding, thoughtful manner. And, um, and that is gonna be necessary in order for you to manage your time. Whether you say no to taking a phone call, whether you say no to responding to an email or no to taking on a board assignment for your uh, local charity. That would be one of the biggest single things I think every attorney needs to master. Yeah, the uh, more is not always better. More of the right things are better, but also less of the wrong things is also better. So I'm with you. All right, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for people that have heard your wisdom and want more of it, what is the best place for them to get in touch with you? Well, two things. One, they they can send me an email or phone uh, call me, uh, or I can get, go to my website. So let me first of all say my phone number is 503-784-7205. My email is mark at coachrockwell, C-O-A-C-H-R-O-C-K-W-E-L-L. -L. Um, so yeah, those would be the, the two best ways uh, to get a hold of me. Or my oh. website is coachrockwell.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us. And to everybody who spent some time listening to and learning this, you said no to something else. And we are really thankful that you said yes to watching this episode. With that, we hope that to uh, see you back next Monday, 627-130 for the top communication tips you need to know. 